The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? Why is this not more normalized? Like, why do people not, in the justice system, like, why are we not centering survivors' voices and asking these people, like, these people who have been so brutally hurt, like, why are we not asking them what they need and being humans about it. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Marley Liss. Fair warning to anybody listening right now. This episode goes into depth about sexual assault and being a sexual assault slash rape survivor. But I do hope that if you can, you'll stick around because it was truly a transformative Um, episode for me. It was about nine months ago that my husband sent me this article about this woman, Marley Liss. And the article really shook me (laughs) to my core and made me have all sorts of feelings and emotions. Basically, Marley was raped. And instead of going through the traditional court system, which she did in the beginning, but then she decided to move away from it and do this thing called restorative justice. And I'll let her explain that process because she does such an incredible job doing that. But I will say my initial reaction was, this is basically a free pass for rapists. That's literally what I thought. I was like, how can you possibly have any healing from going this route. And then when I started to look up the statistics, it's only about five out of every thousand rapes committed. That's 0.5%. That ends in a felony conviction. Meanwhile, throughout the entire process of trying to convict your rapist, right, you can potentially be re-traumatized over and over and over again. Because we currently have a system in place that is truly not supportive um, or caring towards victims. So with that, I will keep this intro short. This episode, like I said, was truly, truly transformational for me. And I hope that you guys walk away feeling the same. Let's go all the way back and talk about, I think I'd like to learn about you and your life even before the assault happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, can I just say like, thank you so much for sharing and for expressing so fully and like for also being so moved by my story in that way and I'm just like with you as a survivor and I think it's really important to not be like we're healed we're fine we're survivors now I think it's like really 
really feels to be like, I feel a lot of things about this. Yeah. So I just, I feel really with you in that. I've been really emotional the past few days as well, um, specific to like sexual abuse in the world. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, my life before um, this specific assault, I, I was like already really passionate about women, like issues or just like the way that the world treated women. Um, I definitely had a lot of non-consensual experiences before. I really resonate with what you shared about that. And I just, I did not have the self-worth or the language or the understanding of consent to like place those things as non-consensual. I was just like, that's fine. Like, eh, I don't know. Um, So I think I was really passionate because of that. Um, I also grew up in like the competitive dance world and grew up on a team of women saw a lot of like eating disorders and just feelings, just a lot of feelings. And then when I was like 21, right before this, this rape happens, or first I'll say, I was also studying social work in school. And I, for some reason was obsessed with yoga. Like I found Eckhart Tolle when I was in like grade 11 and I was just like, I love him. And he was, I just like read his books and I would skip high school classes to go to hot yoga. (laughs) I don't know why. So I was really like drawn to self-work or whatever. And yeah. And then I I ended up being on this ashram when I was 21. I lived and worked there for like three months. It was me and all these women who were like 60 and up, maybe a few people around my age. But I just learned so much from these older women about their lives and and what they'd been through, what they'd overcome. healing path. So I was, I was pretty connected to all of this in different ways. It's, you know, a couple of things. One, going back to the, cause I, I think that a lot of, well, I think it's sad that still in 2020, we just don't value women and children. Like we still live in these very patriarchal societies you know, I was looking up the current statistics, you know, that one in six women will either have an attempted or completed rape experience in their lifetime. Um, this is all coming from rain, which is kind of the go-to place for statistics in the U.S. on sexual assault. And as of 1998, 17.7 million women in the U.S. have been victims of rape. 2.78 million men. 94% of women report that they have PTSD after their rape experience. You become 10 times more likely to become addicted to drugs after sexual assault. Native American women, um, or up in Canada, the indigenous women are the most likely and highest risk for being assaulted. You know, 60% Of rapes are never reported. If reported, only 50% of them lead to an arrest. If arrested, 80% become prosecuted, but only 58% actually get convicted. And uh, out of those convicted, only 69% go to jail. So looking at the statistics of unreported and reported, 15 out of 16 rapists walk free. And so you know, we have a criminal justice system that just really doesn't work. And we're going to dive into that later. 
But what you talked about before is like you felt like you didn't have enough self-worth in those experiences. And when I think about it, it's not so much about my self-worth. Like because of my sexual abuse from a very early age, I equated sex to love. But if someone wanted to have sex with me, that meant that they loved me because I had such programming and conditioning as a child, specifically from my first set of sexual experiences. But it's sad to me that it's 2020 and we're still having to fight to talk about consent, that we're still having to advocate for ourselves. And the truth is, it's sad that we're still having to say like, oh, well, my self-worth, you know, I didn't have enough self-worth to know that these experiences were not okay. But my feeling is like, no, we need to teach boys that it doesn't matter what the fuck our self-worth is, period. That if she says no, or she doesn't want to go past kissing, or she doesn't feel it, that's it. There's no coercing. There's all, no, I'll be your, all the things I heard. I'll be your boyfriend if you X, Y, and Z, or, oh my gosh, we'll go to the homecoming if you blah, 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 or I'm going to take another girl or whatever. That's rapey. That makes you a sexual predator. That's not okay. And so it's just really challenging to me that in 2020, obviously we're older. So, you know, my experiences have in early 2000s in those teenage years. But even then that we're having to like, fight um and what feels like very much so alone because very few men are going oh yeah let's stop rape culture and it starts at home and I need to be a father that explains consent to my son (laughs) yada 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 yeah oh my gosh okay firstly I wanted to say like I'm so I I always feel like this is not enough to say, so I feel weird saying it, but I'm so, so deeply sorry that you had these experiences. And I actually want to like, when I say the self-worth thing, like what I really mean is internalized objectification culture. Mm. And like, (laughs) yes, this, it's really what I mean. And it's this lack of understanding that that my body deserves not to be treated as an object. So I didn't even get it. I was like, this is normal because I see this in movies all the time. And like, I guess this is just how sex is. And uh, I didn't get it. Like, and I'm not putting the blame on me, but I didn't um, understand. I I couldn't name it for myself. Whereas this experience um, just a few years ago was like undeniable. Like it was, it was very undeniable. That's the perfect way to clarify that. That is the perfect way to explain it because I think a lot of women go, oh, well, I didn't have enough self-worth to say no. And it's like, no, I just want to make it really clear that it's A, that men don't understand consent and still, and B, that we are conditioned and programmed to believe these things. And that's just, that's the truth. So it's not, I just don't want anybody out there who's listening to go, oh yeah, well, I didn't feel good about enough about myself to say, well, then go to prom with whoever. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? You've been conditioned to be the girl that goes to prom with the perfect date and you'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and again, it's like I'm I don't associate that with with fault at all. It's like it's more like about my own processing. It's like yes. not about whether or not that experience happens. It's not consensual, but it's about like my ability to be like, wait, this was an injustice. Like, wait, this is not okay. Um, and, and I think that's so tragic that so many of us like do not even realize that injustice is being done to our bodies because that's so, so, so normalized in our and culture. And to our minds too. I mean, I remember <laughs> feeling like predators around me the second that I hit puberty. Like I remember the cat calls. I remember the creepy guys who would always comment on if my mom and I are sisters or not, and I'm so pretty and oh my God, she's a little, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And so it just, it starts at such a young age. And so it's both mental and physical. And And I love that you said it starts at home. Like this thing of it starts at home with like men learning about consent, boys learning about consent. I actually like, had a big, huge, very emotional talk with my roommate yesterday because um, I live with like a white cis man and I was just like, I don't, he used certain languaging that felt very triggering for me as an abuse survivor. And I was just like, this wording is not okay. And it became this whole conversation about like the reality of power dynamics between men and women and just like how little languaging that takes place inside our private household like does matter in the big scheme of things like it's all part of it so yeah so so relevant yeah like (laughs) and I want to also hold space for the men who are listening and who are open to hearing these conversations Because here's the thing, it's just as much as I say this to women all the time, it's not your fault that it happened, but it's your responsibility to heal. The same is true for men. Like it's not your fault that your dad raised you and said, grow a pair of balls and get it together. And all of the things that, you know, are programmed in, in young boys that is still very prevalent in our culture. And it's your responsibility to heal that. Yeah. I love that. I, that's like, that was a big motivation in my why behind restorative justice, because I do think it's like intergenerational conditioning and like, what there's a statistic that's like, we're exposed to 5,000 media images per day on average. And like, I would probably say all of those images, like reinforce objectification and these horrible things. And so from such a young age, we're all just like drinking in this normalization of how to treat women's bodies, how to treat our own bodies. It's just, What's, yeah. Yeah, there, I did a great episode for anyone who wants to reference back um, to, it was titled How to Navigate the Body Positivity Space with Katie Wilcox. She's very informed about that if anyone wants to jump back and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. There's nothing that I love more as a busy mom than simplifying my life, especially when it comes down to dinner time. That's where Green Chef comes in. 
Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. With Green Chef, it's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week that you'll love to cook. And you will, you'll love to cook them because recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. You can switch up your meal plan whenever you're ready to try a new way to eat. That's what's so cool about Green Chef. Not only are they a USDA certified organic company, but they have different meal plans that include paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. I had my Green Chef box delivered to my house on Monday, and we absolutely loved it. Evan was a big fan, and so were the kids. On Monday, we had the chicken with the mushroom. It was so good. Tuesday was probably our favorite, the pork chops with the caper sauce and the kale salad. Delish. And then last night, I made the hamburgers, and I absolutely loved them. Evan wasn't home, and so I made the extra portion for lunch today, and it was delicious. Right now, you can use code REALITY80 to get $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com forward slash reality80 to redeem this offer and for more details. That's greenchef.com forward slash reality80 to redeem and for more details. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV, and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms. Okay, so let's move forward to your experience. So you're in school, in college to become a social worker. And how how old were you when this happened? I was 21. So it was literally a week after I got back from that ashram, which is like really interesting and contrasty. Yeah. Do you mind sharing the details of what happened that night? Yeah, sure. So um, I always like to make sure to share in a way that feels good for my body yeah. at the moment. Um, but I, it had been a week and then I went out with some friends and I was super excited about that because I'd just been like a 21-year-old meditating for like three months. <laughs> I was like, ah. And if um, anyone doesn't know what an ashram is, like it's you eat primarily vegan food. I mean, I've gone and stayed at ashrams. There's no alcohol. You meditate all day or you're in, you know, community worship. You're in a very secluded environment, which is a profound experience. But for most 21 year olds, the second you get out of there, you're like, oh, freedom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And I was not like a thousand percent a monk or anything. Like I read a lot and everything. And then I also just like loved yoga and all these things. Yeah, so I was super excited to go out with my friends and drink, and I got drunk really fast because I hadn't drank in three months. And then, um, yeah, we went out to this club, and I just like slowly lost my friends throughout the night. But we had plans for me to sleep at their place, 
um one of them like went home because she was sick and then the other one just like I don't know we lost each other and I was like okay I feel really drunk I need to just like go home and go to sleep and that's kind of when I met this guy who was a total stranger to me and he was like he asked me to dance for oh I was leaving and I was like hey I need to look for my friends like I'm leaving he's like oh I'll help you look for your friends so like looking can't find them he's like well let's just share one dance we're like share one dance he's really handsy and I'm just like okay now I need to leave um and so I'm like I'm gonna go to the front he's like, I'll help you get a cab literally coincidentally I was like I'll get a cab to my friend's place because I know they're there because one of them and literally, coincidentally, he lived in the same condo as them, which is pretty wild in Toronto. Like, it is a big city. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So he was like, let's split a cab. Like, we're both going to the same place. Like, might as well, like, I'll pay for it. Okay. And that's so funny because I wrestled with so much self-blame around every piece of this story. And um, so, yeah. And then we got there and I kept calling my friends, calling my friends, and they weren't answering. I was like, shit, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm exhausted like okay you can lie down in my place for like for a minute till your friends answer and I was like okay um and I just like kind of crashed like I was like just lying down he like didn't really he just like got me water at first and then went away and then he came back and like very quickly like pulled down my pants and I was like I'm practically conscious right now like you definitely shouldn't touch me like but it still feels good right and I said no and then he just like continued and um, he assaulted me for like four hours. Um, initially, he used penetration. He like covered my mouth when I said no at several different points. And then I just really froze. froze. And um, yeah, I, I like snapped out of it. Like he finished and like came all over me and then went to the bathroom and I like slowly snapped out of it because I realized it was getting light out. And then kind of when I like ran out and went back to my own place. You had mentioned, not that this changes anything in the other podcasts that I listened to, that there was periods where he said, like where he expressed remorse. Yeah. So that was really confusing. Like you was literally like penetrating me and at the same time being like, I'm so sorry. This is so fucked up. Um, but continuing. And then like once in a while would get up and kind of like pace and be like, this is so messed up, but then continue. Hmm. And how did you perceive that? Um, it really confused me because I have always been shown this narrative. And I think a lot of us have of like a rapist as a monster, not a person, but just like a total monster, like a psychopath, with zero emotional capacity. So I was like, how is this person like feeling something? Like, how are they having any kind of emotional experience and continuing this? So it just made me be like, it made me kind of humanize him while it was happening. And that was like, I think in the end, like that helped me with my justice journey. But like, ultimately, it just broke my brain. Yeah, I think there's so many different ways that you could take that. And I think it's definitely a mind suck 
for sure. It's like, like here, this is happening. And this person's pausing to go like, what the fuck? And also over those four hours, you're getting more and more sober. Like, after you left, you decided to go to the hospital and get a rape kit, correct? Yeah, so I went back to my place and I was living with like other college women and um, one of my close friends. I remember I like stood outside her door for a really long time. I was like, I either knock now and tell her or I don't think I'll tell anyone. I just like knew that and I eventually knocked and told her. And we literally Googled like, what do you do after being raped? And it was like, go to the hospital, get a rape kit. Okay. Still, that takes so much courage. I remember after my rape happened, I woke up the next morning and I had no money. And my sister had left me at this house. We had gone to an after party at this person's house. And I just felt so ashamed. And I also felt like because I was drunk, it wouldn't matter anyway. Like that it would be his word against mine. It wasn't until much later that I had found out that he had done the same thing to another woman. Literally someone sent me an article and was like, this is the guy that raped you. Right. And I was like, Holy shit. But I still, at that point I had not decided to do the rape kit, which I now really regret because it's like, it would be his word against mine and I'd have no, there was no physical proof. So it, it takes so much strength, you know, like I said in the statistics earlier, 60% just don't report because we either believe that it's our fault or we're too scared or we're in a state of trauma response, which I think is not talked about enough that fight, flight, or freeze response that takes place in the brain. A lot of people don't even remember the trauma that happened. So for me, with my early childhood sexual abuse, I repressed those memories until I got sober at 19. So I just think that, yeah, it takes a lot of courage to go, okay, let's go and do this. What was your experience like when you went to the hospital to get the um, rape kit done? So when I got there, oh, I just want to say like, it's really confusing as well with like the self-blame. Because it like there's the whole it's his word against mine, and I was really like, I'm an idiot. Like I'm an idiot. Like That's I, how I felt too. with him and all this stuff, and um, and even like it's so amazing that you like read the BuzzFeed article. If you read the comments, they're horrible. They're like you were drinking. Like you deserved this. Yeah. You're an like right. And so, fuck. We make it really, really, really hard for survivors. And the questioning that comes along with it can be equally as traumatizing as the experience itself, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a million barriers, <laughs> a million reasons like not to speak up, sort of, um, which is horrible. And none of those should exist. But another thing is that when I got to the hospital, the nurses were understaffed and they said, can you come back in 24 hours? don't take a shower, don't change your clothes. We'll do it tomorrow. And that, like, I literally had his semen on me. And I'm just like, I can't. And I'm pretty sure I just, like, sat, like, catatonic 
on my couch. I don't even know. I don't even remember. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And then I came back. I don't even remember what happened that day. Um, And again, that's that fight or flight or freeze response that's happening in your brain. And it's your brain's way of protecting yourself from the immense amount of stress. I can't even wrap my mind around someone telling a rape victim, go home, don't shower, we'll see you in a day. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be a thing anywhere, especially not in, you know, the developed countries where we have medical systems that, you know, and it's not like you're going to go, oh, well, let me try another hospital. You're just going to go, oh, well, the nurse told me to go home. So I'm just going to go home. There are no words. But, like that makes my heart like ache for you. Mm-hmm. That's really just so traumatizing. Oh, I don't know. That's so hard. So you did go back. And when you went back, did they, were there police there? Like, how did you make the decision to go forward with reporting? And, and I don't know if you mind sharing what the experience of getting a rape kit is like. I, I've never had one done. If you're not comfortable, that's okay too. Um, yeah, no, I can totally share. Um, and I think actually, I think I did go to a different hospital. I don't think they wait, but I, I don't even feel that confident about it. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I did, I did go to get a rape kit done and it's just, it's just such a, it's so awful. Cause it's like, you just had this horrible freaking trauma and like my whole body was just so closed, like was just so like, don't touch me like hedgehoggy and, um, they have to like put things inside of your vagina and like get DNA, like do all these swabs and it's very clinical and, and kind of formal. I was really blessed to have the sweetest nurse. Like she cried with me um, and like, I'll remember her forever. And I had actually, another thing that Google said to do was to write down what happened. And like, well, it's still fresh in your mind. So I had written it down and that actually really helped me because I didn't want to have to repeat what happened at that time. And so I just like handed it to her. I was like, here, just like read this um, when she was asking some questions. And then she was kind of like, okay, so we're done with this. Like, do you want to report? And this is such a huge part of why I tell this story because no one made me aware of a third option. Like, no, for three years, I did not know that restorative justice existed. Um, My options were just like report or don't report. And I didn't want nothing. Like, I was like, I don't like, am I just supposed to go home and like watch Netflix? Like, I I don't like that feels ridiculous. Um, I wanted something. And so I was like, okay. Let's just like go to the police station. Does the, do government officials know about restorative justice? Is that like a known third option or is that just something that you, you found out along the way? 
So I don't know what it's like in California or in the States with this, but in Ontario and in Canada, or definitely in Ontario, it's actually in the Victim's Bill of Rights that the moment they report, they should be informed about restorative justice. And most governments appear to be very pro-restorative justice. Um, But none of them, as far as I know, at least in North America, are implementing this. Um, Except in the cases sometimes of like youth crimes more related to like shoplifting and what they consider to be small. Yeah, I can see that. You know, like a young kid who's, you know, having problems at home who commits a crime and is able to go and make amends and, you know, so that should have been an option, but it, but it wasn't. And you decided that day that you were going to report, did you report the same day? Yeah. So I went right from the um, hospital to the police station and, and thank God for like the friends in my life. Like the friend that I told stayed with me the whole time throughout this, like ridiculously long maybe 48 hour process of like waiting and the rape kit and the reporting like I don't know I think one of the most upsetting parts of like reporting to me as well is like the police are not allowed to show emotion because then it seems like they believe you and so they have to be like kind of cold and that is not what anyone needs in that moment I think as, a, as we watch these shows like Law & Order, SVU, and all of these things, and the detectives are so like warm towards victims, and that just couldn't be further from the case. One, I believe it's a matter of, like you said, you, you know, you have to be very... I, I think that there's a way to be balanced and trauma-informed and well-trained when doing this work. And I just don't think that there's been really any, I don't want to say desire because that's not the right word, but enough encouragement for them to start doing things like this, especially when it comes to, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault and, and things of that nature. I think there's a way to be, what's the word? Like Switzerland, what's the word? Oh, why is it <laughs> like neutral? Neutral. Or... Yeah, I think there's yeah, a way yeah. to be neutral and trauma informed, and you know, trained properly to deal with these situations. Yeah, and I think like on a consent level, what you're saying about the social worker is so important because I had no idea what I was saying yes to by reporting. I was like, okay, I guess the next step is to report or not. And like, I did not know that that would involve a three-year process with like really re-traumatizing trials, like photo lineups, like constant calls with police to give like statements and investigative measures. Like I just, and certain people in my life being like called upon as witnesses. I just did not know that all of this was like me, my yes by me reporting. I just had no idea. Yeah. From my understanding, you didn't, you decided not to go to trial, but you did end up having preliminary court hearings. I don't know what the process is like in Canada. I'm just assuming it's fairly similar to here in the, in the U.S. for the most part. I think about, again, another ample 
opportunity and something that would be so valuable to long-term health outcomes for victims of having a social worker that's walking you through that process of, okay, you're going to have to testify. And like, this is the process of testifying. You had said in the podcast that I had listened to before that someone said something like, if you don't answer all of the questions, I mean, like, and how harsh is this? If you decline to answer a single one of these questions, then no one's going to believe you. Or it was something along those lines. They were saying like, then you'll be seen as non-cooperative and you could get charged. Like what kind of, I'm sorry, bullshit is that? Like you're being seen as non-cooperative and now you're going to get charged. Like, so now you're being put through this really punitive, almost barbaric system Mm -hmm. as someone who went through four hours of being sexually assaulted and then 24 hours of just sitting there, not being able to shower or, and I'm going like, no wonder the vast majority of women don't want to report. Yeah. And I've just been saying it, like, I've just been claiming this word, like, the punitive system, I feel, is abusive towards survivors. Like, that was an abusive experience for me to, like, sit on the stand. And, um, yeah, it's like we have preliminary trial, which is basically, like, a smaller trial. And they use that to see if there's enough evidence to go to a criminal trial. So I did do the preliminary trial and that was two years after the assault still. And I really had spent those two years just trying to survive. And like, I was suicidal at one point. I was going through PTSD. I would like break out in hives, random panic attacks. Like it was so um, severe and this did not help at all. In fact, I think it was a major hindrance. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's an abusive system to like put someone on a stand and drill them with questions. And for the defense lawyer, like I say, I wish the defense lawyer was in our restorative justice circle because I have trauma (laughs) towards him that I would really like to heal of things of just like, how can you ask me that? I'm surprised that they weren't. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it might've been like a legal thing or just like his personal discomfort of like, I don't know, like this is different. I'm not really sure why he wasn't but yeah just like some of the I remember just like looking at him in the eyes and being like are you serious because like he would ask like how many thrusts per minute or how could like you say that he penetrated you here but you were lying in this position how could he possibly access that hole and I'm just like are you now now you're giving sex ed 101 on the stand like as what yeah, I feel it's like the punitive system specifically that is abusive because, and this is why I advocate for restorative justice because it was friggin' day and night. It was like the second things shifted, it became about my healing. And it's just like worlds apart. And people often hear my story and they're like, oh, like, is she some kind of saint? Like, why is she trying to save her rapist? And I'm like, I very much personally as an individual needed this shift. Like I needed this, Um, you know? And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. (laughs) So let's talk about when you made 
the decision to move forward with restorative justice and what that experience was like for you. How many years into this experience was it that you finally had that meeting? Yeah, so it had been three years and this was something that I found completely on my own. Like nobody, no therapist, no one in the legal system told me about this, even though it's in the Bill of Rights for me to know about it. So it was like, I think it's important to say too that throughout those three years, like I was saying to close friends that this like weird dress, like judge dresses up and brings a gavel and all this stuff. Like it felt very costumey and not human. And I was like, in my world, like we just sit down like fucking humans and like grieve. And, and I would like ask all these questions that I had and I would like look this person in the eye and just like, yeah, try to make sense of this in some way and like hear an apology and make sure that they change. So I was kind of asking for restorative justice without having a name for it in a way, like to my friends. And just eventually I said that to someone when I was traveling, they were from Germany. She was like, she was like, Oh, like this sounds like something we have in Germany. So it wasn't until I got subpoenaed for the criminal trial, which was just last winter. Like it's all pretty fresh. Again, like I didn't know about restorative justice yet. And I was like, I think I'm going to drop the charges because it was too hard. It was just too hard. And um, I knew I'd just go into the courtroom and like hear him lie about this. And then I just put myself through it again. And I'd come so far with my healing. I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, But pause for one second because you said I didn't want to hear him lie. Yeah. Which leads me to believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that he was still being defensive and not owning and or acknowledging any responsibility for the fact that he raped you. And yet you still wanted to move forward with this alternative option. That's like really, that's a huge decision. Mm, yeah, I I think that legally, I just have never heard a story where a rapist shows up in a courtroom and says, I take full ownership. I did this. I'm ready for my I know, but it's a risk because you're going into this hoping for him to go, I raped you. There's the closure, yeah. right? Like there's the peace. Mm-hmm. Like I raped you and what I did was horrendous and you didn't have any indication that that would be the outcome. Like it was a total risk to go into this and just kind of, I mean, yes, of course you have the right to say your piece and, and that alone, I mean, if I could sit down with my rapist and say my piece, I mean, it would feel pretty amazing. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. but I think the real closure is like this exchange of and validation of like I did this to you and so that is a risk going into it that like you may not get that outcome it it actually was a prereq like I didn't know it when I asked for it but like I think this is true for all restorative justice processes it's like that person is going to 
receive certain interventions and supports and resources until they are able to take accountability. Once they can take accountability, then you'll move forward with some kind of like circle. Okay, but quick question. If he didn't, do you still have a chance to try him or no? Once you call um, him out, that's it. I would have still had a chance to try him. Um, the charges weren't technically dropped till after the circle. Okay. Um, but in all honesty, for me, I would have just dropped the charges rather than trying him. And that's like very much for my own. And you, yeah, everybody has the right yeah. to do whatever they want to do. I think that when, um, I think it's, it's just important to be informed about this process and how it works. I want to continue with your story and then and for people to hear what the experience was like and what your conversations were like with him. And then we can talk about other cases and things like that, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah cool. <laughs> okay. So the meeting, like this meeting that we had. Yeah. So I, I think it's kind of funny cause I didn't know anything about like restorative justice or the legal system at the time. I was just like, okay, like I heard that this thing exists and I'm just going to like find a lawyer who can work pro bono and I'm going to just like ask <laughs> for this thing. Um, and I basically said like, I really want to have a meeting with the prosecutors. And there was actually two prosecutors because they were passed and one of them was passing off my case. Um, which ended up being really important that they were both there. So we went to this meeting and right away, one of them um, who I cannot name was like, oh, like, why don't you want to go to criminal trial? Why are you scared of criminal trial? Like, you're a strong woman. You can do it. We'll go to criminal trial. And it was like such a quick reroute. And um, so dismissive of like your desires. Yes, yes, 100%. And something... She said, she was like, no, like people don't really do restorative justice for this. Um, and if you think about the Me Too movement, people really want to see rapists locked up. And I was like, so you're using the Me Too movement to silence my voice? Like, that is not the point. Not the point. Yeah. And um, so the other prosecutor, whose name is Kara, and thank God she was there. She's amazing. She was like, and she's actually on our board of directors now for our organization. She was like, she's like, Marley, what is your dream vision for, for this justice outcome? And that just like blew my mind. First of all, no one had ever asked me what I wanted in this whole thing. No one had ever been like, hey, what about you? What are your needs? And so that was like so meaningful and just like blew my mind. And I was like, I want sort of justice. Like I want him to get help. Like, I don't know what the hell happened in his life or what he's been taught or what he's been through, but like, he clearly needs some kind of support or like transformation or therapy or something that will make sure he doesn't do this again. And I also like, I think from studying social work and like all these different healing things, I just really believe in transformation like maybe not for every single human being but I was like I just don't think prison is the thing like statistically there's so much that shows that like people reoffend after prison they become more violent they become like more ashamed 
And so I just did not believe that that would make him a beautiful human being. Well, it's really easy to go. And I have this instinct. You know, when I first read your story, I was like, no, fuck that. Go to prison, do 10 years. You're a piece of shit, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and then there's the other part of that, that a lot of people who rape go on and continue to rape. And like, you don't know if this guy is going to somehow like never sexually assault someone again. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different layers to this. But if we actually look at these people as traumatized individuals who are immensely suffering, and that's so hard to do, it takes a degree of emotional intelligence and personal work that you've done. And I think for me, maybe it's a little bit even more easy because I was a 19-year-old twice convicted felon. I don't see myself as a bad person. I was a very sick person, you know? And while I didn't rape or murder someone, I did a lot of bad shit, you know? Um, And so I just want people to really wrap their minds around that concept that it's possible for you, for us to hold people accountable and also to have empathy and understanding and compassion for them. Mm -hmm. I love, love, love that you shared that. And honestly, like I've gotten so, as much as I've gotten so much support and gratitude and whatever from sharing this, I've gotten so much hate around like this idea of being a rape apologist and letting a, a rapist, letting a menace walk free and even like, yeah, something else that the the other prosecutor initially said was like, oh, sweetie, don't you understand that rape is bad? And I'm like, I'm not a fluffy cloud boins- like bouncing <laughs> through the atmosphere. Like I am the, per- <laughs> the person who experienced this to the point where I almost took my life because of how painful this was. And what I said to her was like, yeah, I believe that rape is so bad that we have to try something different because what we're doing is not working. Like sexual violence is one of the only crimes that has not gone down at all in frequency. Like it is so common and it's probably even more freaking common right now with the quarantine people like trapped at home, whatever. Like it's just, it has not been working. And my thing is like, just restorative justice is so much more compatible with like the way I see the world and this question of like, if I don't know why I even thought of this, but just like this long-term picture of like, if this man, like if my rapist has children one day, do I want them to be raised by someone who was like locked up for 10 years and is just like more pissed off? Or do I want them to be raised by someone who's been in like, extensive therapy and has had this whole like accountability and transformation process and and I see it that way like I see it that big picture and I really want to honor um the indigenous communities because that's really where restorative justice comes from and it's like yeah it would happen in in tribes that they're like why are we so quick to exile people Like, these are our people. And if they're acting out like this, like, they must be hurting. And so what what can we do for our greater community? And that's kind of how I see it as well. I think the children thing is so triggering for me. 
my um, the person that um raped me as a child has two daughters and I don't know I think it's different when you're a child pedophile and rapist like there's something wrong with you like I I think that there's something wrong with (laughs) rapists obviously like the power dynamic or whatever it is but I think forcing a five-year-old to perform oral sex on you ejaculating all over their butt on a regular basis like you know, rubbing your penis all over their genitalia, all of that stuff. It takes a very sick person to do that to a crying child who's saying no and to like shove their head down and to like, you know, to do that. And so, yeah, I wish that person didn't have children. I don't think he should have children. I don't think I, I have a lot of feelings about that. And maybe that's not balanced. I don't know. I think that there's just like a spectrum, right? There's my rapist that happened at 17 who has raped other women in the past, right? So it just, yeah, I think it's like a case by case thing, but. I really want to say that, um, that restorative justice is not for everyone. And like, I don't feel that there's a one size fits all package. And, um, I also think it's really important to say that it's not a hundred percent anti-incarceration. It's more like, let's try everything that's focused on repair. And if none of that's working, then let's go the punitive route. And I think that is really important to say because some people are psychopathic or a whole host of other things that I don't know enough about. Um, but I think that percentage is smaller then we are led to believe. I agree. I I wholeheartedly agree. So would you mind sharing what that meeting was like for you? And, you know, let's just start there. Like, yeah. what, what was the actual, like, when you walked in and you sat down, like, what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to say first that, like, just even getting the phone call that restorative justice was happening that like they were going to do that was probably the most meaningful moment of my life because I was just like holy shit like I am being heard like my voice matters in this and that was so like voice was so huge to me in this journey of trauma like I was like my mouth was covered and my no was ignored and all these things I just like this was so huge like wow like my voice matters and so I was really in celebration mode and he was in like therapy for I guess maybe six months first. And then we met in this circle. And um, I guess also, like, like I said, the restorative justice system on a consensual or trauma-informed level was like instantly the biggest contrast from the punitive thing. Like it, it instantly became like, what would make you feel more safe in this space? Like what, what feels good for you? What are your fears? How can we safeguard those triggers? Like so loving, so loving. And that was everything. So even before the circle started, I was like, wow, I feel so much healing through restorative justice. And arrived in that room, my mom and my sister were there as well because restorative justice is community oriented and acknowledges that like more people are affected like trauma ripples in a way. So they were there as well. And my assailant was there and his friend was there. 
and two mediators and my lawyer and a crown attorney, but they were just there as like people. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so we just walked in and they said, you have to acknowledge every person in the room in whatever way feels good for you, which was wild because this person was a stranger to me. And I had only seen him during the assault and in court and we're like not allowed to talk in court. Like it's, and it'd be, I don't know, weird if we did. And so just to be like, Hey, was so mind blowing and important because I had made him this like big, giant, scary entity. And to just be like, you're a freaking human. That was really important for me. Yeah, so basically the mediators just asked us one question, which was what brought you here today? And we went around the circle three times responding to that. And it took us eight hours to move through that. It doesn't always take that long, but for us, like, I think it had to. They were kind of like, it takes as long as it takes till everyone's like satisfied and, and like had their closure. So freaking amazing and different than court. So yeah, I think the first time that they gave me, there was this like talking piece and they had an altar in the middle to honor the roots of restorative justice, like just in different indigenous medicines. And they had this like talking piece and I just like answered that question. What brought you here today? I think I spoke for a full hour and it literally, I was just like, it was like the depths of me being like asking all the questions. And this is what I had wanted from the beginning. Like, that's what I had said to my friends. And um, to say that too, like, while he's looking at me in the eye, I'm being like, wow, from the really very beginning, all I wanted was for you to look me in the eye and like witness my grief and hear my peace and talk like a human. And like, it's happening right now. And it was just like, whoa. So that was amazing. And it was also really hard. Like, I don't deny that at all. Like, my body was like shaking the whole day. And I was on a chair with wheels. So it was like, oh. <laughs> it's like so ridiculous. And um, then when it was his turn to speak, he like shared about his journey with this. And he shared about how like he actually repressed what had happened initially, like denied it to himself. And then that shifted for him when someone in his life was sexually assaulted. And like, told him it's really wild like told him about it and he like they kept saying it was my fault it was my fault and he said to them like it wasn't your fault and he described that moment as like all of his memories unlocked and he like remembered exactly what had happened and how messed up it was and that's when he looked me in the eyes and was like I'm so sorry like I raped you it was horrible like you like you said before like it was horrible there's nothing I can do to take it back but I hope that being here today can help and I did not realize how much I needed that moment like I did not realize how deep that was in my body but it was like very visceral that like I felt a knot untie and I just burst into tears I just burst into tears and um it was so it was so powerful and and we just we just like kept going and I guess that first round was like the hardest like the most like like pulling out grief and like shit and all the trauma and muck and then it definitely got like 
lighter and lighter and it was kind of like okay well what what happens now and I was kind of like oh and he also shared that like he was suicidal at one point when he was like getting ready for court and all these things like he was and I was just like wow both of us were going to kill ourselves from this thing and instead we're like sitting here in this circle and like doing the friggin' hard courageous work of like change like making something change or just like yeah finding repair and it was so powerful that was such a visceral moment of healing for me that I didn't even know I needed like I just broke down in tears that felt like relief and felt like this really deep knot in my stomach had untied and um yeah and then it it kept getting like a bit easier from that point on in the circle like I feel like that was the hardest hardest part and then it was kind of like okay well let's talk about like why this happened and like what yeah what conditioning had or traumas had happened in his life that led to this and like how has therapy changed him and yeah there was this really potent thing of like he shared that he was suicidal at one point when we were like going through the trial and stuff and it just really blew my mind that we were suicidal at the same time and I was like wow because of this experience like both of us were going to take our lives but instead we're sitting here in this circle like doing this repair focused whatever work yeah it was probably the most powerful intense thing I've ever been a part of yeah I got really emotional when you're talking about like being able to look him in the eyes and to explain how you felt and the ways that it's affected you because it's like at the end of the day I think we've been programmed in some ways to believe that seeing our perpetrators behind bars are is somehow going to bring us relief that that is going to be the ticket that like finally frees us but I'm here to tell you that (laughs) that's just not the case and that for so you don't necessarily get freedom you don't know what's going to bring you peace you certainly don't get peace if there's no closure at all you maybe get a little bit, you know, I had uh, Kim Goldman, whose brother OJ killed her, OJ Simpson um, murdered her brother. And she came on and said the peace she felt knowing he was behind bars. And that might be the case for her. But I can imagine, and you don't get that I mean, sometimes you get that opportunity in in the U.S. to like write a letter during sentencing and explain. But I almost feel like writing a letter and in a sentencing and explaining what happened to you to a person who's so shut down, who knows that they're going to prison, who has been in a state of denial. It's almost like for him, being given this opportunity allowed him to get vulnerable and to go, oh my God, I can't even believe the amount of pain that I've inflicted and that is so much 
more liberating to me, I feel, than having someone who's just like been in denial the whole time, who's now going to jail and you're, you're bearing your heart to this person who's like so shut down and not at all receptive to like your experience. You said something that was so interesting. You said before, and we kind of got cut off and jumped back on that. It felt like something was like unlocked inside of you and then just like physically like purged from your body. I don't think that there's any greater gift than that because we know that the body keeps score. We know that the body stores trauma. And so to have that like open and released is such an incredible thing. Yeah. And this is why like I, I don't even share this story to be like, look how special my experience was. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I share it because I'm just like, Because I'm just like, why is this not more normalized? Like, why do people not, in the justice system, like, why are we not centering survivors' voices and asking these people, like, these people who have been so brutally hurt, like, why are we not asking them what they need and being humans about it? Like, we are responding to such a dehumanizing thing in this, like, old, formal, really old, like really old way. And it's like, this person needs care. They need care and they need someone to be like, what would be most healing for you? Let's map a justice plan based on that. Yeah. And you're not advocating this for everybody. Like this, this should be an option and it should be the survivor's choice. Yeah, and I think not necessarily restorative justice, but what I am advocating for for everyone is like ask survivors what we want. Just yeah. ask us what we want. Yeah. Yeah. So after this process, and again, if you don't feel comfortable answering this, it's okay. But do you ever think like what if he did this again and would I feel responsible if he did and he and I didn't send him to jail that's an interesting question so I feel really really deeply reassured that he won't do this again like I feel the way that he showed up in the circle was like beyond my expectations but I like to say like aligned with my dreams in some ways um there was a lot of things he said of just like how this changed him and just like the extensive therapy and consent training that he received and the unpacking of his patriarchal conditioning, like just really, really amazing stuff. And he shared in the circle, and I wish that there was some kind of follow-up process with this. And I think like if this was more standardized, this would be a part of it. But like he did say in the circle that he wants to help stop sexual violence and he wants to share his story someday and like make sure that like kids don't take the same path that he did and that meant everything to me and I feel like some people have been like oh like that's just bullshit like he's just saying that whatever and I'm like I don't really care about your perception I really benefited from hearing that (laughs) um so yeah I feel really reassured and then I also think that we have to be really careful of like not 
bringing victim blaming in in this reverse way because that was another narrative from the BuzzFeed article of like you let a menace walk free like if he does this again it's on you and I'm like can we just all agree that rape is always on the rapist (laughs) and like I am not freaking responsible for whatever he does nor is any victim of any crime like we are not responsible for like healing these these rapists or and we're not it's we can't even do that for them it's like not a reality everyone has to do that for themselves so I think that's really important yeah I think the reason I think it's just such a just this like my mind is just the reason why I decided to report was because I knew this person had children and I felt like if they were being abused, I would forever feel responsible. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're right. Like, and I remember my therapist saying this to me, like, it's not your shame to carry. If we really want to change this, we have, it's, we have to change our entire society. Honestly, I'd love to hear more about, your uh, movement and the work that you're doing if you're open to sharing about that and yeah so there's kind of two things that I do um one is rehumanize and this is the organization that my mom and I started together after the circle and we were just so mind blown by this and we were so and still are so passionate about survivors having a healing experience and like breaking chains of hurt people hurt people on a really mass scale and so um we have this organization and we're creating a resource directory that connects survivors to uh, restorative justice agencies and we also do a lot of education and awareness on the why behind restorative justice that is like some big stuff as we've been sharing about and then um, the other thing that I do is my more personal work, which is very much about sacred sensuality and reclaiming sexuality. Um, I do coaching with women in like one-to-one and in a group setting. I'm like getting ready to launch this program that's all about sacred sensuality. There's like 10 women right now signed up from all over the world. And we just do so much reclamation work, and so much like coming back into the body feeling ple- like accessing pleasure because I think so much trauma work is about like acknowledging pain acknowledging pain acknowledging pain and that's so important and then it's like and then what and then what do you want like what do you want to embody and to actually like rewire the brain and the nervous system to like feel freaking good as we deserve to feel so yeah. that is the work I do it's so important reclaiming my sexuality wasn't something that happened until just a couple of years ago. And, you know, people are always like, Oh, but I mean, you used to dress in sexy clothes. It's like, that's not reclaiming your sexuality. Reclaiming your sexuality is really honoring the divinity in you, the pleasure in you that your body is your own by being willing to explore what feels good for you, finding a partner that is trauma informed, that understands like, there's so many parts of that and it's been the most freeing experience of my life. And it really is what has led to, I feel like it was kind of that missing piece for me, you know, is that I needed to like 
acknowledge that this body is my own and, you know, figure out for me things that I like and that I don't like. I know that we've gone like way over. I try to keep my sessions to 45 minutes. We're well over that. Um, But this was absolutely necessary. But I wanted to ask a few questions that my community has. And I think it's it's interesting. So we, we covered this since rapists often reoffend. Wouldn't this put future victims at higher risk? We talked about that. Not only that, but I would just, uh, we talked about, we covered this in the fact that A, the victims are not responsible for what their rapists go on to do. And two, that if the criminal justice system was really a system of reforming people, then people wouldn't go out and reoffend. Like if going to jail actually stopped rapists from raping, then we wouldn't have rapists. Like it's not a matter of going to jail and doing time and all of a sudden you're free. It's about dealing with societal programming, healing generational trauma, getting people access to therapy, holding them accountable. Maybe there's like a happy medium where this person is on a sex offenders list, maybe, or, or, or something like that, or they're on a probation period or, you know, yada, 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 yada. Like who knows? Maybe there is some medium way. What do you feel about that? Where it's like, you get to have a uh, you're also held accountable. So, I mean, the restorative justice process is all about accountability. And there's a really amazing book I want to recommend called Until We Reckon um, by, mm-hmm. I think her name's Danielle Sarid. And she's the founder of a restorative justice agency in New York. And she talks about all the creative, many, many, many varied ways of doing restorative justice. And when it is actually implemented, because mine was very like, make it up as we go, because it was like, we don't do this for sexual violence, so let's just kind of like improv. But like, there are really standardized practices for some really like, yeah, real, real crimes. And she talks about like, the many ways that they make repair and transformation sustainable, or maybe they have like, a person, a mentor assigned to that person to work with them. Maybe that person like has to do a certain amount of community service. Maybe they have to commit to certain educational programs. Like there's so many different ways for restorative justice to happen. Okay. So that clears that up. How can someone heal through sexual abuse? That's a repeated question throughout this. Mm-hmm. and. I think we both agree that it's just a really personal experience and that the biggest thing is that people need to know that they have options. Yeah. And also that they deserve options and like that everyone, like whatever you're feeling about your abuse is valid and important. Um, I think a lot of us do this thing of like, it wasn't bad enough. Like we kind of compare bad enough or like I don't know we just like question if our feelings are valid which is very much what we've been taught to do and just knowing that whatever you're feeling is is really valid like this was an injustice 
and like a really horrible thing and yeah whatever you need to do to heal and to just know that there are so many services and supports out there I've, I've contacted rain before like I know you were reading some statistics from rain and that's like a hotline slash helpline that I've contacted and there's a lot of great resources like that um the last and okay well there's two but I want you to answer this first one the last and one of the most important questions is, is the healing in you forgiving them or is it him asking for forgiveness? You know, it's funny. People are so focused on forgiveness and it's not even a thing that I feel is that big a thing for me. Like what I kind of say is that <laughs> it was more about being able to hold like compassion and devastation at once. Like to be like, I hold compassion because I realized that like, this man is a human who's, who's been conditioned and all these things that we were just talking about, just really humanizing him. And then simultaneously being like, this like really almost broke me. And um, I feel like, I just, I just don't feel that connected to like forgiveness work. It doesn't really feel like what's at the root of this for me. I don't, I don't know how yeah, what do you think? So, um the gift for me was was for me in the forgiveness work because I never got the opportunity or the the you know, my my rapists and abusers have never apologized to me, you know. So I so I had to do that work myself and what it was for me was you know, that my anger, my hatred, my pain, my shame was making me sick. And I don't want to feel this anymore. We were talking about the mind-body connection. And um, and so what my spiritual healer, Uta, kept saying to me as we were doing this really primal, physical, somatic work and healing around my sexual abuse um, was that, and I kept having to repeat this is forgiveness is a gift that I choose to give for myself. It's for me. It's not for the other person. And doesn't mean that what the other person did was okay. And any degree, it just means that I'm finally deciding to forgive. That doesn't mean that I can't be angry. That doesn't mean that I can't feel sad. That doesn't mean that I can't feel peace. That doesn't mean that I can't, I can forgive and feel angry still. And it was kind of like I needed to understand that there's processes to grief and to healing that sometimes we're going to have days where we just can't even think about it, that sometimes there's going to be days where we feel really angry. There's sometimes days where we feel peace and liberation and um, I can be in a state of forgiveness during all of those moments even when it's not necessarily pretty and then the last question that somebody asked which I think is really important one is what can we do to protect our children I talk about this a lot because I have two daughters and um, I'm someone who obviously has dealt with a lot of sexual abuse so the first thing that I always tell parents, and I don't know if you do much work around this or if you talk about this often, is 
teach your children the proper names for their body parts. That's the first thing. It's been proven that if your children know the proper names for their body parts and what those body parts do, that their chance of being sexually abused goes down significantly. And that if they are sexually abused, that their perpetrators are caught because they're able to explain exactly what happened, where it happened. They have the proper names. They know the proper functions of what these body parts do. The second thing is, you know, and that involves sex positive parenting too, like really explaining to our children what sex is and being very cautious in the in our own old outdated belief systems about sex I think that's a huge piece of this too and then um, lastly talking about consent I mean my daughter by the age of five understood clearly what consent is and there's many great books on this I posted about them before I will link them in the show notes The first one, they're all available on Amazon, is This Is My Body. And then the other one, I believe, is called Red Flag Feelings. And it's basically about teaching our children to trust their inner guide. If something feels off and you get that red flag feeling, something is off. I don't care if that's grandpa giving you a kiss and you don't like it or uncle so-and-so tickling you on the couch and it doesn't feel good to your body. We need to teach our children very young that when they say no, it means no. And even when my daughter is wrestling with her much older male cousin and I hear her going and they're playing wrestling and I hear her going, stop, stop, stop. And then she goes back and starts after he stops or whatever and goes back and then pushes again for him to start tickling her, I have to stop them and explain, Harper, if when you're playing and you say stop, that means stop and everybody stops. If you then go back, you know, you have to be very clear on your message. Either you're enjoying the tickling and roughhousing or you're not. And when you say no, that means no. And that's it. Like you Mm -hmm. have to be really clear on what feels good for your body and what doesn't. And it sounds to me, you know, and it, and whether she's wanting attention or playtime, or she doesn't know how to communicate that she wants attention and playtime, and maybe it's something else that she's wanting. We have to give our kids these really clear defined boundaries, you know, that no means no, and no means stopping that behavior altogether, period, that we're not playing roughhousing, tickling, whatever anymore. Yeah, I love that you shared that. And I really want to encourage people to reach out to me um, because that is so much of the work that I do. Like now I've studied somatic sex education and social work and all these things. And it's like, there. I love what you said, like unpacking it in yourself is huge. Like if you're role modeling sex positivity and body love and like you're not letting objectification culture seep into your home. That makes such a world of difference. And then, yeah, like teaching consent and, and really integrating it into every area of life. Like you're saying, with wrestling, with playing, with passing the salt across the table, like just integrating consent into everything um, and creating that consent culture. 
So like, yeah, anyone listening who wants to do that work or reclaim their sexuality in that way, then like, please reach out. I also have a free, like three day training on my website, marleylist.com. That's all about sacred sexuality. And mm. it's, it's such a beautiful way to shift these things. Cause it's like, feel empowered in your own body and in your own sexuality. And that will ripple, that will ripple to your family, to your communities. And it's not everything, but it's a lot. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to unpack here. There was one other thing that someone had a question about last minute that I wanted to bring up. And I think it's important. And it's what if you become pregnant from your sexual assault? And I actually wrote down the statistics that yearly there's between 77 and 112,500 children conceived each year from rape. Mm -hmm. And again, and this is why I'll always advocate for being pro-choice. I'm obviously very liberal, but also that that's a situation. I can't even wrap my mind around that situation. You know, I've heard the horror stories of rapists getting custody of the children. Like, wow. Uh, I don't even know. Do you have any input or feedback or feelings about that? I definitely have feelings about it. I guess, like, the most important thing I would say is your body is your body. You should and hopefully do have the right to choose. Um, whether you want to have that baby or not. And I just want to validate, like, I imagine there must be so much mixed feelings around that experience. And again, I'm just like, all of those feelings are valid. Like, that is, yeah, just a lot. And so, yeah, just honoring, I really do honor whatever decision people make in that, in that case. I think my biggest takeaway from this conversation, and I'm so grateful to have it with you, is that that there's hope that we can do things differently and more effectively, and we can do it trauma-informed and, and victim-centered, and, um, and, and also hold space for the perpetrators, too. Yeah, thank you so much, love. Thank you. And I am going to make sure to have all of your information in the show notes. If you want to visit Marley's website, it's just marleywissright.com, M-A-R-L-E-E-List.com for more information. And again, I'll have everything in this episode up in the show notes for you guys. Thank you so much. This week's affirmation is, I am worthy of love. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 